1959, Frank Edwards, noted radio broadcaster and ufologist, published a book titled Stranger Than Science. It contained over 60 tales of, as you would guess, very strange events, urban legends, hauntings, and UFOs. It was varied in what it covered. There were tales of abominable snowmen, of men being swallowed by large fish, and living to tell of their accounts, and even the strange story of a man named David Lang, who disappeared in his own front yard in the late 1800s. The most sensational account to come from the book involved Alexander the Great and his supposed encounter with UFOs during the Macedonian Siege of Tyre in 332 BCE. Edwards wrote, Alexander the Great was not the first to see them, nor was he the first to find them troublesome. He tells of two strange craft that dived repeatedly at his army until the war elephants, the men, and the horses all panicked and refused to cross the river where the incident occurred. What did the things look like? His historians describes them as great, shining, silvery shields, spitting fire around the rims. Things that came from the skies, and returned to the skies. This would be further expounded upon by Alberto Fenoglio in an Italian UFO publication in 1966. Citing the work of Raymond Drake, Fenoglio would offer up the story of five silver shields breaching the walls of Tyre, allowing it to be overrun. The shields were so thoughtful that they even stuck around until the fortress was completely stormed by Alexander's forces. Cool stories, right? Well, they're not true. Edwards and Drake claimed to cite the work of Alexander historian Johann Gustav Droysen, though upon examination of his work, there are no tales of silver shields breaching any walls. Instead, there are stories of Alexander's forces using catapults to compromise part of the wall just enough to get his forces inside. And those silver shields? Turns out the Tyrians would heat their bronze shields and throw them from the walls of their fortress. In an attempt to force Alexander's troops to take off their armor and expose them to attacks from archers. Alexander's silver shields have been shot down by everyone, including famed UFO researcher Jacques Vallée. Sorry, Forrest, it's just not true, dude. You just gotta get over it. But are there other, more reliable accounts from our ancient past? We'll be looking into that on this episode, and we'll be looking into some of America's first UFO sightings from a time when Roswell wasn't rolling off our tongues. What's up, you fanats? Welcome to the Our Strange Guys Podcast. beginning section I'm only going to highlight a few pre-American sightings here but I do feel it's important to bring them up considering where we are in the world of ufology today and the theories that kind of you know reign supreme at least on television when we look to the ancient past for UFOs reports tend to be problematic reliable stories often go ignored by historians are poorly translated reside in private collections and are generally told by second- or third-hand sources. What's more, most of these texts have a religious or political bent, putting what we would consider the most mundane celestial events into a cause-and-effect relationship with history. 
Most famously, the Battle of Hastings was predicted by the passing of Halley's Comet in 1066. This also has the unusual benefit of preserving a lot of potentially good UFO sightings, if you can cut through the particular biases of the time. That's not to say the UFO community itself doesn't take things too far at times. It most certainly does, especially when we look at the prevailing theories of the past decade. When the History Channel debuted Ancient Aliens on April 20th, 2010, it exposed millions of people to a theory that, at the time, did have a large cult following. The Ancient Astronaut Theory. This is an offshoot of the extraterrestrial hypothesis, and proposes that man's past was influenced by extraterrestrials, making it one giant cargo cult. Through 12 seasons, the show has become as out of control as Giorgio Suclos' hair. But in that first season, it established one biblical story as a strong indicator for extraterrestrial involvement in human history. The story of Ezekiel's wheels within wheels. The idea of Ezekiel's UFOs was first proposed by Eric Von Doniken in his book Chariots of the Gods in which he explored the idea of various archaeological sites as evidence of E.T. contact. In the 70s, Von Donneken was invited to speak at NASA, which I find hard to believe, but um, it makes sense for the story. And he met a man named Joseph Blumrick. They conversed, and Von Donneken told Blumrick of Ezekiel's wheels within wheels. And from that conversation, Blumrick set out to disprove him. Only he didn't. He ended up bolstering Von Donneken's claims. And he published them in a book, The Spaceships of Ezekiel. It's a hard-to-find book. It's not easy to come by. It's kind of expensive. It must be made clear that the ancient astronaut theory relies heavily on interpretation of archaeological and historical artifacts and texts. With the book of Ezekiel, it is no different. It's these passages specifically from the first chapter of the book of Ezekiel that ancient astronaut theorists point to. I looked, and I saw a windstorm coming out of the north, an immense cloud with flashing lightning and surrounded by brilliant light. The center of the fire looked like glowing metal, and in the fire was what looked like four living creatures. In appearance their form was human, but each of them had four faces and four wings. Their legs were straight, their feet were like those of a calf, and gleamed like burnished bronze. Under their wings, on their four sides, they had human hands. All four of them had faces and wings. And the wings of one touched the wings of another. Each one went straight ahead. They did not turn as they moved. As I looked at the living creatures, I saw a wheel on the ground beside each creature with its four faces. This was the appearance and structure of the wheels. They sparkled like topaz, and all four looked alike. Each appeared to be made like a wheel intersecting a wheel. As they moved, they would go in any one of the four directions the creatures faced. The wheels did not change direction as the creatures went. Their rims were high and awesome, and all four rims were full of eyes all around. Spread out above the heads of the living creatures was what looked like a vault, sparkling like crystal and awesome. That's right, these wheels had awesome rims. At least we know God was kicking it right back in the day. 
Biblical scholars have stated that the passages of Ezekiel are meant to be seen as apocalyptic visions, kind of like the book of Daniel or the book of Revelations, where John was really tripping out at the end there. Though it is interesting to note that Ezekiel is written in the first person, which according to a Gaia.com article is not very common for books of the prophets. And in Jacques Vallée's and Chris Albeck's book, Wonders in the Sky, Unexplained Aerial Objects from Antiquity to Modern Times, they mention this. It is noteworthy that the description of the UFO includes some words that appear once in the entire Old Testament, an indication that the prophet was indeed looking for ways to express a vision that surpassed his understanding, and the ability of translators to adequately convey his experience. Moving on from the biblical UFO to a UFO battle over the city of Nuremberg, Germany, uh, a lot of you will probably know this sighting, but it's famous for its woodcut depiction, which was done by a man named Hans Glaser. And if you've seen the image, you know that it's a depiction of a bunch of shapes in the sky. You can see the sun, and it's got the face like most art from back in that day but uh, all these shapes in the sky are there and it was ultimately printed on a broadsheet which is a newspaper kind of back in the day what i'm going to read for you now is from that broadsheet it's uh it's the report the translation is kind of poor so we're gonna we're gonna work with it all right and uh, i'm sorry if i butcher it a little bit but uh, I'll, I'll do the best i can here in the morning of April 14th, 1561, at daybreak, between 4 and 5 a.m., a dreadful apparition occurred on the sun, and then this was seen in Nuremberg, in the city, before the gates and in the country, by men and women. At first there appeared, in the middle of the sun, two blood-red semicircular arcs, just like the moon in its last quarter. And in the sun, above and below, and on both sides, the color was blood. There stood a round ball of partly dull, partly black, ferrous color. Likewise, there stood on both sides, and as a torus about the sun, such blood-red ones and other balls in large number, about three in a line and four in a square, also some alone. In between these globes, there were visible a few blood-red crosses, between which there were blood-red strips, becoming thicker to the rear and in the front, malleable like the rods of reed grass, which were intermingled, and among them two big rods, one on the right, the other to the left, and within the small and big rods there were three, also four, and more globes. These all started to fight among themselves, so that the globes, which were first in the sun, flew out to the ones standing on both sides. Thereafter, the globes standing outside the sun, in the small and large rods, flew into the sun. The globes flew back and forth among themselves, and fought vehemently with each other for over an hour. And when the conflict, in and again out of the sun, was most intense, they became fatigued to such an extent that they all, as said above, fell from the sun down upon the earth, as if they all burned, and they then wasted away on the earth with immense smoke. After all, there was something like a black spear, very long and thick, sighted. The shaft pointed to the east, the point pointed to the west. Whatever such signs mean, God alone knows. 
Although we have seen, shortly one after another, many kinds of signs on the heaven, which are sent to us by the Almighty God, to bring us to repentance, we still are, unfortunately, so ungrateful that we despise such high signs and miracles of God. Or we speak of them with ridicule, and discard them to the wind, in order that God may send us a frightening punishment on account of our ungratefulness. After all, the God-fearing will by no means discard these signs, but will take it to heart as a warning of their merciful Father in heaven, will mend their lives and faithfully beg God that he may avert his wrath, including the well-deserved punishment, on us, so that we may temporarily here and perpetually there live as his children. For it, may God grant us his help. Amen. So, again, we have this bias. The bias of religious. And it's because of that that this sighting is immortalized to begin with. What we can also see in it, reflections of modern UFO sightings. Their lack of vocabulary describing what they see is similar to our reports today. What were once rods are now cigars. What were circles and globes are now discs and orbs. What's more, we have reports of objects falling to the ground and essentially burning uh, up into nothing. And there are trails of smoke, which are clearly immortalized on the lower right-hand corner of the woodcut art. So, did, did a UFO battle happen here? Or did the residents of Nuremberg, Germany, witness uh, nothing more than the phenomena of sundogs? I don't think so. But... Then again, I didn't live in 1561. I can't say for sure, but uh, certainly doesn't seem like quote-unquote sundogs. Final pre-American sighting I want to talk about uh, took place five years after the Battle of Nuremberg. It took place on three different nights, starting July 27th and uh, the 28th, and then uh, it reoccurred and actually intensified on October 7th, uh, 1566 in the uh, town of Basel, Switzerland. Uh, so what I'm going to read for you now, because similarly with this account, it was immortalized in a pamphlet, essentially, but it also had woodcut art, and this woodcut art depicted a bunch of spheres in the sky, black spheres. And essentially, uh, it's a very similar kind of thing, so... What I'm going to do here is just read from that pamphlet here again. So, here we go. It happened in 1566 three times, on 27 and 28 of July, and on August 7. Against the sunrise and sunset, we saw strange shapes in the sky above Basel. During the year 1566, on the 27th of July, after the sun had shone warm, on the clear, bright skies, and then around 9 p.m., it suddenly took a different shape and color. First, the sun lost all its radiance and luster, and it was no bigger than the full moon. And finally, it seemed to weep tears of blood, and the air behind him went dark. And he was seen by all the people of the city and the countryside, in much the same way also the moon which has already been almost full and has shone through the night, assuming an almost blood-red color in the sky. The next day, Sunday, the sun rose at about six o'clock and slept with the same appearance it had when it was lying before. He lit the houses, streets, 
and around us if, as if everything was blood red and fiery. At the dawn of August 7, we saw large black spheres coming and going with great speed and precipitation before the sun and chattered as if they had led a fight. Many of them were fiery red and soon crumbled and then extinguished. So you have a similar thing going on. Uh, it, they're saying that on August 7th, these black spheres in the sky were kind of just doing battle with themselves. We also have a repeat of a color blood red. Blood red was mentioned many times in the uh, sighting at Nuremberg and also the one in Switzerland. So it, it, there are interesting parallels there. So is this evidence of ETs visiting us back in the day? I can't totally rule that out at this point. It's a possibility, just as much as it's not a possibility. Uh, we're living in a world right now of, you know, what ifs. But more than that, this did happen. It's just what did happen, what really happened. We'll never know. I say we should be open to it. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to talk about some of America's early UFO sightings. And, uh,. These are uh, these are pretty fun. So uh, uh, we'll be right back. Welcome back. As we've said before, America's rich UFO history generally dates back to Kenneth Arnold's sighting in 1947. But the truth of the matter is, it may go back even further than that. Maybe even as far back as the 1600s. So this first story comes to us from a man named James Everell. And it was found in the journal of Massachusetts Bay Colony Governor John Winthrop. In this year one, James Everell, a sober, discreet man, and two others saw a great light in the night at Muddy River. When it stood still, it flamed up and was about three yards square. When it ran, it was contracted into the figure of a swine. It ran as swift as an arrow towards Charlton and so up and down about two or three hours. They were come down in their lighter about a mile, and, when it was over, they found themselves carried quite back against the tide to the place where they came from. Divers other incredible persons saw the same light, after about the same place. One can note the similarities between this report and the UFO reports of today. We are assured that the witnesses are reliable. We were given a description of the craft resembling a swine when it flew up and down the river for a number of hours. Again, attesting to the lack of vocabulary in UFO sightings. The most unique feature of the sighting, though, is this portion. They were come down in their lighter about a mile, and when it was over, they found themselves carried quite back against the tide to the place where they came from. Some researchers have pointed to this passage as an example of missing time, as they were, quote-unquote, carried back. Missing time is a feature of the abduction phenomenon, where the witness cannot recall a certain period of time, sometimes stretching for hours. They can recall events before and after, but it's as if the information regarding the time in question is just removed. It's gone. Sometimes, though, it's recalled through hypnotic regression or through terrible nightmares. Hypnotic regression, it can be sketchy at times. But So, could James Everell have been abducted by this mysterious light? 
could that be why we're uh, why hours are unaccounted for? There are similarities in Everill's story and the 1976 abductions of four men from the Allagash, Maine region. Charles Fotts, Jim and Jack Weiner, and Chuck Rack had gone on a week-long camping trip. On the third or fifth day, the men decided to go on a night fishing trip. On an earlier evening, the men witnessed a light in the sky they presumed to be an airplane. After observing this light for a while, it eventually folded in on itself and disappeared. That's not weird at all. Why the heck would you stick around after seeing that? Okay, well, I'm just going to suspend disbelief. Suspend disbelief. Okay. On this night, on this night in question, the light returned. And while the men were in the middle of the lake, they decided that they were going to signal this light with a flashlight uh, that they had on board the boat. Not the smartest move, turns out. The light ends up pursuing these men, dropping an actual beam of light toward them as they raced in their canoe for the shore. The last thing they remembered was being on shore, looking up at this light. A few years later, Jim Wiener's in an accident, car accident, more specifically, and it left him with some permanent damage. He ended up suffering from, you know, seizures for the rest of his life. But he also began to have terrible nightmares about the camping trip, and soon he would get all the guys involved. They would all un- end up undergoing hypnotic regression and recall that uh, they were actually abducted that night and subjected to medical tests. I originally learned of this case from an Unsolved Mysteries episode that I watched when I was like maybe six or seven years old, and it messed me up for life! And still have... It still freaks me out. Okay, okay. We're going to move on before I get flashbacks. Moving moving on. Would you believe me if I told you that Thomas Jefferson, when he was the vice president of the United States, witnessed a UFO? This account comes to us by way of a communication from Jefferson to William Dunbar, which was then passed on to the American Philosophical Society, which uh, Jefferson was actually president of at the time. Jefferson described seeing an object the size of a large house, 70 or 80 feet long, moving rapidly, heading from the southwest to the northeast region of Baton Rouge, Louisiana, on the night of April 5th, 1800. And this right here is part of his account. It appeared to be about 200 yards above the surface of the earth, wholly luminous, but not emitting sparks, of a color resembling the sun near the horizon in a cold, frosty evening, which may be called a crimson red. When passing right over the heads of the spectators, the light on the surface of the earth was little short of the effect of sunbeams, though at the same time, looking another way, the stars were visible, which appears to be a confirmation of the opinion formed of its moderate elevation. In passing, a considerable degree of heat was felt, but no electric sensation. Immediately after it disappeared in the northeast, a violent rushing noise was heard, as if the phenomenon was bearing down the forest before it, and in a few seconds a tremendous crash was heard, similar to that of the largest piece of ordnance, causing a very sensible earthquake. I have been informed that the search has been made in the place where the burning body fell, and that a considerable portion of the surface of the earth was found broken up, and every vegetable body burned or greatly scorched. I have not yet received answers to a number of queries I have sent on, which may perhaps bring to light more particulars. 
the size of this object is incredible. It's very large. If it's a meteor, as some have suspected, it would have caused considerable damage to the area. Like, we're talking a major impact crater. At least, you know, from the non-scientific background that I have and just thinking on this for a second, that's what I would think. Could it just be that Jefferson misjudged the size of this object? Could an object actually that size cause, quote-unquote, a sensible earthquake? I'm not exactly sure what a sensible earthquake is, but it's not like we had the Richter scale back then. I don't think so, but then again, I'm not a scientist. It's tough to really say what he saw. However, in the initial communication, uh, Jefferson notes that the object resembles figure 5 in plate 4. To date, nobody's ever been able to find this image, whatever it is. So it kind of makes the sighting live on in a way. It's very possible that Jefferson actually saw a meteor, but who really knows at this point? So I bring him up again, but Kenneth Arnold. We all remember Kenneth Arnold and his sighting. Uh, it's I keep bringing it up. It's really... It was impactful for the UFO community. It really pushed this phenomenon into a major spotlight. And of course, from Kenneth Arnold, we have the flying saucer term. What if I told you that describing an object as saucer-like actually dates back further than that? We're going back to 1878. On the morning of Wednesday, January 2nd, 1878, farmer John Martin was hunting on his property north of Dallas, Texas, when he noticed an object that appeared to be the size of an orange and gaining in size rapidly as it was approaching his location. The object was dark despite the brightness of the morning. He strained his eyes trying to focus on it, momentarily blinded by the brightness of the morning sun. By the time he spotted it again, it was directly over him. It was said in the local newspapers... When directly over him, it was about the size of a large saucer and was evidently at a great height. Martin kept his eye on the craft, watching it move rapidly out of sight. The paper noted Martin's trustworthy nature and said that if this was not a balloon, it deserved the attention of our scientists. Even our man, UFO Daddy, J. Allen Hynek, would go on to classify this sighting as a daylight disc. So... It's a really fascinating sighting in our history that not a lot of people know about. Even John Martin didn't technically describe the object as being a saucer, but it ended up in the paper that, hey, this thing is saucer-like, at least when it was overhead. So I've always found that sighting to be kind of fascinating. From 1896 to 1897, America was a hotspot for UFO activity. Newspapers printed reports of sightings from people claiming to see quote-unquote airships, fueling speculation that aliens were visiting us from the planet Mars. Mars was all the rage back in the day. Kind of continues to be now. Because, you know, there are plenty of blog posts from, from different places commenting on the latest photos from mars oh hey look at that oh of course there was the famous face on mars and there's been the stone hedge like runes on mars and there's been pyramids on mars and oh hey is that the shadow of an alien on mars people have been throwing speculation at mars for 
decades. It's almost weekly now. And I kind of feel like Mars is tired of your shit, so please stop throwing it at the planet. But we can essentially trace all of this clickbait back to 1877, when uh, astronomer Giovanni Schiaparelli noted a network of dark lines on the Martian surface. The public ate it up. And in particular, Percival Lowell. He was just a guy with money, but he ended up building an observatory in Flagstaff, Arizona to survey the surface of Mars. It was the most powerful observatory at the time. And he was definitely not dissuaded by what he found. He said, aliens were on Mars. Well, that's nice without really noting anything. In 1894, Stéphanie Javille of the Nice Observatory in France observed a bright flash from the surface of Mars and came to the conclusion that they were either trying to send signals to Earth, these Martians on the planet, or it was a gigantic gun aimed for the planet. Again, science was definitely in its infancy then. The most fun theory, though, comes from a man named William Wallace Campbell who postulated that life on Mars took the form of a giant sentient vegetable and that Mars's famed white spot was an eye that it used to spy on the universe. You really can't make this shit up. So clearly in the late 1800s, it came from Mars. So the most famous of these airship sightings uh, took place on April 17th, 1897, in the town of Aurora, Texas, when an object took out a judge's windmill and crashed to Earth, killing its sole pilot. The town buried him in their local cemetery, and it buried the objects in the judge's well, and it shooed people away from trying to dig up the spaceman. This is just a brief overview of the event, but... Uh, if you're curious, I would direct you to my buddy TJ's uh, podcast, uh, Pints and Puzzles. His pilot episode is about this particular incident. And if you want a great overview of the whole airship craze, check out the Not Alone podcast's last Patreon episode. They did a great job of running through like the major accounts at the time. And if you throw them five bucks a month, you can get it. And like the extended editions of their episodes are hilarious. So, uh, yeah, kick them some bucks. Um, but there is one story that comes from this time that really kind of stands out it's for a particular reason. I'm going to get into that. It's about a man named Colonel H.G. Shaw, and he's a Civil War veteran and uh, a former journalist at the time. And he was leaving Lodi, California uh, with his companion, a young man named uh, Camille Spooner. And they were going to a Fresno Citrus Fair. Yeah citrus so as they approached the woodbridge canal uh in their carriage shaw stated we were jogging along quietly when the horse stopped suddenly and gave a snort of terror looking up we beheld three strange beings they resembled humans in many aspects but still they were not like anything i have ever seen they were nearly or quite seven feet high and very slender shaw would go on to say their faces and heads were without hair. The ears were very small, and the nose had the appearance of polished ivory. Their mouths were tiny, and Shaw described their eyes as large and lustrous. They were possessed of a strange and indescribable beauty. He tried to ask them where they were from, 
but said they didn't seem to understand. And communicated by warbling. That is incredibly off-putting. But, you know, it's a communication divide, whatever. Sean touched one of the creatures and found himself able to lift it up with ease. And on the back of each of these beings was a shoulder bag that had a nozzle sticking out of it. And occasionally they he noted that they would bring them up to their mouths as if they were kind of inhaling something. As if the story of aliens with portable hookahs on their backs couldn't get any weirder, one of the beings, going off the signal from another one, attempted to lift Colonel Shaw off the ground with, quote-unquote, the intention of carrying him away. They failed miserably, and to save face, they ended up producing egg-shaped lights, and using these egg-shaped lights, they revealed an airship that was nearby. As Shaw described it, it was 150 feet in length at least, though probably not over 20 feet in diameter. It was pointed at both ends and had a large rudder on one end of it. The aliens ran in a swaying motion with a 15-foot gate, and then they jumped 20 feet into the air, entered their ship, and flew off in a high rate of speed. And Shaw caps it by saying, I have a theory, which of course is only a theory, that those we beheld were inhabitants of Mars who have been sent to the Earth for the purpose of securing one of its inhabitants. As I've made it clear, Mars gets a bad rap for wanting to do sinister stuff to our planet all the time. They are the jealous ones, the ones who destroyed their planet and looked to ours to conquer. Mars was a bias at this point, much in the same way that earlier accounts uh, lean towards religious or political reasoning for its celestial events. What's most fascinating about Colonel Shaw's account is how incredibly detailed it is. Either he's a grade-A fiction writer, or he went to painstaking detail to document what truly happened to him. Regardless, this is the most fascinating account of the world's first failed alien abduction. I have two more cases I want to bring to the table before wrapping this episode up. Uh, one of them's from 1897, the other is from 1941. The first is the story of Alexander Hamilton, and no, I don't mean that Hamilton, not the one with the musical named after him, but another Alexander Hamilton. This Hamilton hailed from Leroy, Kansas, and his account is considered to be one of the first animal mutilation cases in the United States. I'm going to give you a little bit of a warning here. If you don't like graphic violence against animals, you may want to skip this encounter. There are some depictions of uh, animal mutilation and just cruelty to animals that you may not like, so just giving you a fair heads up. Last Monday night, about 10.30, we were awakened by a noise among the cattle. I arose thinking that perhaps my bulldog was performing pranks, but upon going to the door, saw to my utter astonishment that an airship was slowly descending upon my cow lot, about 40 rods, or 600 feet, from the house. Calling my tenant, Gid Heslip, and my son Wall, we seized some axes and ran to the corral. Meanwhile, the ship had been gently descending until it was not more than 30 feet above the ground, and we came within 50 yards of it. It consisted of a great cigar-shaped portion, possibly 300 feet long, with a carriage underneath. The carriage was made of glass or some other transparent substance, alternating with a narrow strip of some material. It was brightly lighted within, and everything was plainly visible. 
It was occupied by six of the strangest beings I ever saw. They were jabbering together, but we could not understand a word they said. Every part of the vessel which was not transparent was a dark reddish color. We stood mute with wonder and fright. Then some noise attracted their attention, and they turned a light directly upon us. Immediately on catching sight of us, they turned on some unknown power and a great turbine wheel, about 30 feet in diameter, which was revolving slowly below the craft, began to buzz, and the vessel rose slightly as a bird. When about 300 feet above us, it seemed to pause and to hover directly above a two-year-old heifer, which was bawling and jumping, apparently fast in the fence. Going to her, we found some material fastened in a slipknot around her neck, and going up to the vessel from the heifer tangled in the wire fence. We tried to get it off, but could not. So we cut the wire loose to see the ship, heifer and all, rise slowly, disappearing in the northwest. We went home, but I was so frightened I could not sleep. Rising early Tuesday, I started out on my horse, hoping to find some trace of the cow. This I failed to do. But coming back in the evening, found that Link Thomas, about three or four miles west of Leroy, had found the hide, legs, and head in his field that day. He, thinking that someone had butchered a stolen beast, had brought the hide to town for identification, but was greatly mystified in not being able to find any tracks in the soft ground. After identifying the hide by my brand, I went home. But every time I would drop to sleep, I would see the cursed thing with its bright lights and hideous people. I don't know whether they are devils or angels or what, but we all saw them, and my whole family saw the ship, and I don't want any more to do with them. It's interesting to note that Hamilton describes the object as being cigar-shaped, which is a term we still use to describe long cylindrical objects today. Cattle mutilation researcher and MUFON's director of cattle mutilations, Chuck Zikowski, has noted that this event and other similar events in Kansas and nearby Missouri occurred on or near the, the famed 37th parallel, which he has dubbed America's E.T. Highway, noting the large number of sightings that occur on it. Hamilton would go on to sign an affidavit notarized by 10 members of the community of Leroy, Kansas, who were in good standing. But it's quite possible Hamilton made the whole thing up. He was alleged to be part of a liar's club. And to further cast shade Alexander Hamilton, in 1943, an article titled The Buffalo Enterprise by Donna Steeby alleged that Hamilton told this as a tall tale to her mother. So take that with a grain of salt, I guess. Despite this, there are other accounts from nearby Missouri the year previously uh, in which a family witnessed a UFO hover near their barn and discovered three of their steers dead within a burnt patch of grass the next day. Is it possible Hamilton heard this account and attempted to duplicate it, maybe? It's possible. We're going to take a quick break before getting into the final account, and this one is highly speculative, but it's fascinating. I'm going to be talking about the Cape Girardeau crash, so we'll be right back. Welcome back. This next incident is one that has been tough to nail down, slowly emerging and gaining traction over a number of years. The Cape Girardeau crash of 1941 comes to us from a third-hand source, a woman named Charlotte Mann. Her grandmother had been the wife of Reverend William Huffman, a Baptist minister from Cape Girardeau, Missouri. As her grandmother was dying of cancer, she told her an incredible story that unfolded over a number of days. 
This transcript was taken from an interview with Charlotte on a TV documentary. I saw the picture originally from my dad, who had gotten it from my grandfather, who was a Baptist minister in Cape Girardeau, Missouri, in the spring of 41. I saw that picture and asked my grandmother at a later time. She was at my house, fatally ill with cancer, so we had a frank discussion. She said that grandfather was called out in the spring of 1941, in the evening around 9 to 9.30, that someone had been called out to a plane crash outside of town, and would he be willing to go to minister to people out there? Upon arrival, it was a very different situation. It was not a conventional aircraft as we know it. He described it as a saucer that was metallic in color, no seams, did not look anything like he had seen. It had been broken open in one portion, and so he could walk up and see that. In looking in, he saw a small metal chair, gauges and dials, and things he had never seen. However, what impressed him most was around the inside there were inscriptions and writings, which he said he did not recognize, but were similar to Egyptian hieroglyphs. There were three entities, or non-human people, lying on the ground. Two were just outside the saucer, and a third one was further out. His understanding was that perhaps that third one was not dead on impact. There had been mention of a ball of fire, yet there was fire around the crash site. But none of the entities had been burned, and so Father did pray over them, giving them last rites. There were many people there, fire people, photographers, and so they lifted up one. And two men on either side stood him up, and they stretched his arms out. They had him up under the armpits and out there. As I recall from the picture I saw, he was about four feet tall. Appeared to have no bone structure, soft-looking. He had a suit on, or we assumed it was a suit. It could have been his skin, and what looked like crinkled soft aluminum foil. I recall it had very long hands, very long fingers, and I think there were three, but I cannot swear to that. My grandfather, upon arrival, said there were already several people there on the scene. Two that he assumed were local photographers, fire people, and so not long after they arrived, military just showed up, surrounding the area took them off in groups separately, and spoke to each of them. Grandfather didn't know what was said to the others, but he was told, This didn't happen. You didn't see this. This is national security. It is never to be talked about again. My grandfather was an honorable man, being a preacher. That's all that needed to be said to him. And so he came home and told the story to my dad, who was there, and my grandmother, and my uncle. Now, my mother was expecting at the time, so she was off in the bedroom. My sister was born May 3rd, 1941, so we are assuming this was the middle to the last of April, and he never spoke of it again. But about two weeks later, one of the men, who had a personal camera that he had put in his shirt pocket, approached Grandfather and said, I think someone needs a copy of this. I have one, and I would like you to keep one. So that's how it came about that Grandfather had the picture to begin with, but he never spoke of it again. The other people seemed to be very intimidated and very frightened and paranoid. When you read this story, it feels like the shy older cousin to the Roswell crash. It all comes from a source passed down to a source, which is in turn passed on to another source. But on the same token, you have an unimpeachable reverend, whose character has never been called into question. Linda Wallace, a resident of Sykeston, Missouri, has done her best to investigate the crash. She has followed up leads that have only led to more and more questions. 
She has found that there are no records in 1941 for the local sheriff, police, and fire departments, as well as the Missouri Institute of Aeronautics. In talking to some local residents, she found one man who worked for the Missouri Institute for Aeronautics who claimed to have removed alien bodies from the woods. This is a mystery that still continues to unfold to this day, but also seemingly gets stronger as years go by. It's unclear whether we'll ever get to the truth, but then again, where the UFO phenomenon is concerned, truth is always subjective. You can find the Our Strange Skies podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, Podbean, Spotify, and most podcast apps. If you'd like to email the show with suggestions for future episodes or comments, do it at OurStrangeSkies at gmail.com. We are on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Just search for Our Strange Skies. We also have a Facebook group, and Gray We Trust, a group for those who look up into Our Strange Skies. Come join the conversation over there. I'd like to give a shout-out to some pods I was recently on and recommend you check them out. They're great. They're all fantastic. Uh, Big ups to the What If podcast for letting me hang out with them on a couple of their Patreon bonus episodes. Uh, They're going to be melting down with us soon. Those guys are hilarious. They have a fantastic podcast, and they're objective, and they're skeptical, and they're great. So check them out. Shout out to Brian and Angelo from the Double Density Podcast. They've had me on a couple of times, and we got to talk most recently about music, the occult, and sashes that Angelo wore for predicting album of the year one time. It's it's a fun conversation. A huge thanks to Scott and Forrest over at Astonishing Legends for having me on to talk about the Times article that broke last year about the government's uh, program to study UFOs. Uh, It was a blast, and... Definitely owe them a lot. A big thanks to Nathaniel Lloyd of the Historical Blindness Podcast for letting me narrate a part of his latest episode. Uh, It's called A Brief History of Unidentified Aerial Phenomenon. It's out on February 6th, so uh, go check it out. Uh, He has a fantastic show. He's, He's a really smart guy, so go check that out. Also, a big congratulations to Dr. Chris Cogswell of the Mad Scientist podcast. Uh, He was recently named uh, Director of Research for MUFON. Um, And last week, uh, on the uh, Not Alone podcast, we announced that MUFON has a new internal review board, which uh, so far consists of Chris, uh, his co-host of the Mad Scientist podcast, Marie Mayhew, Sam Fredrickson of the Not Alone podcast, uh, and myself. And uh, what we're going to be doing is we're going to be kind of peer-reviewing cases that come in, doing write-ups on them, suggesting some that need may need further investigation, stuff like that. But also, we're going to be putting this information eventually out to the public, so uh, that's, you know, that's fantastic. And Chris is going to be on next week's episode, and it's going to be a cool kind of after-school special where we're going to talk about essentially how you file a report with MUFON, a UFO sighting report with MUFON, and, and kind of what makes uh, good sighting data and stuff like that. So uh, check that out next week. Our logo was designed by Tessa Brown, and our theme song was composed by Shane Yoder over at PutThemInASong.com. Shane still has a special discount for you over at the site. If you're in the market for a podcast theme song, or maybe some mood music for an episode, even mastering, you can receive 30% off any order over $50 by using the promo code STRANGE at checkout. Again, that's 30% off any order over $50. Just use the promo code STRANGE at checkout. I can personally vouch for Shane's work. I love my theme song. He did a hell of a job on it. 
He also did the theme song for TJ over at Pints and Puzzles. So take advantage of that code while you can. And finally, don't forget to look up, because you never know what you'll find in our strange skies. In Grey We Trust. David Media.